Expect that people will not just listen to your instruction, they will even more listen to your life. And if they listen, what will they hear? When listening to the life of Paul, we discover one who practiced what he taught. Hello everyone, I'm Joel Van Hoogen and this is The Bread of Life, a radio ministry of the International Mission Church Partnership Evangelism and its associate fellowship, The Bread of Life in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about our ministry abroad, go to traincpe.org. And to learn about our ministry in our community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. We're in Romans chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 7 and 8. We're at the beginning of a book full of instruction, and yet in the introduction, Paul gives us a glimpse into his life and practice, not intending to instruct, but just to tell us how it is with him. And yet when we see his life, it is wonderfully instructive. Today we see how Paul approached God in prayer. Romans chapter 1, verses 7 through 13. Here's what Paul writes. To all in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making a request if, by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be strengthened or established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among other Gentiles. One of the things Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 3, is that he doesn't build upon any other man's foundation, that God has called him, in a sense, to be a pioneer, to go to new regions. But now he's going to Rome, and Rome already has Christians that are there in place. There are already believers in place there. And Paul is declaring that he's going to come to them. And we might think that Paul is now breaking his tradition of not building on another man's foundation. But what we could understand is that in many ways, the ministry that Paul has had throughout the Roman Empire has percolated and flowed back into Rome. And there in Rome, the gospel that has touched these other regions of the Roman Empire is through the witness of those that he's reached. And the team that have worked with him have reached have brought their witness back to Rome and there are many that are coming to Christ as a result and a great thing is taking place. And so there's no one in a sense that can take credit for being the founder of the church in Rome, but Paul does have a unique designation that's been placed upon him by God. He's been called of Christ to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He's called to come and to bring the gospel to the Gentile community. And so Paul calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he's writing to this largely Gentile church in Rome. Another tension that you'll see in the writings of almost all of Paul's letters is, although he's communicating primarily to a Gentile audience and Gentiles who are turning to Christ, there is within them a Jewish community. And they're learning to live together. And it's kind of rough on the Jews because the Jewish community has lived with an understanding that they are the special chosen people of God. And they're particularly chosen because of a lifestyle they chose to follow that God gave them in which they maintained certain levels of cultural and ceremonial purity. Not touching certain things, not eating certain things. This has been the basis on which they've maintained their distinctiveness as God's chosen, loved people. 
And now that the church is rising up to the Gentiles, the Gentiles have for years felt this kind of cold shoulder from the Jews. And the Jews have a hard time shedding this sense of their special privilege. Paul, in many of his letters, is trying to find a way to encourage these two groups to come together. One of the things that's actually taking place is Paul is writing this while he's in Corinth, and he's getting ready to return to Jerusalem, and he writes about this, in order to bring an offering from the Gentile churches to bless the church in Jerusalem. He actually prays at the end of the letter of Romans, he asks that his gift would be received, because there are some Christians in Jerusalem that don't have a high view of Paul. They think that Paul is somehow undermining the Jewish faith that they've learned, and that he's teaching somewhat of a lesser form of Christianity. He's watered it down for the Gentiles. And there's this kind of conflict that's going on as well that Paul is aware of when he writes his letter to the Romans. And so when you read the book of Romans, you'll see throughout the book of Romans that Paul is addressing both Gentiles and Jews. And in the first part of Romans, he puts them all in the same place. They're all under the wrath of God. He also provides salvation for them in the same point. It's all through faith in Jesus alone. And then he even has a conversation which the Gentiles are not to think of themselves as privileged beyond the Jews. He addresses this in Romans 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans. And then commonly together, he gives them instructions on how they're to live together and how they're to carry out the will of God together. So these are things that are in the mind of Paul here. In this passage that we've just read, Paul is simply introducing somewhat of his heart intent. He's simply sharing with them his own attitudes as he approaches them in ministry. This should be incredibly helpful for us when we think of how we should be approaching ministry among one another, what our attitude should be. Before Paul begins to give any kind of specific instruction in his letter, he just tells them what is in his heart towards these people and towards those he's writing to. And actually, as a result, his words are particularly instructive. They're instructive because he's not trying to be instructive. He's not trying to give statements of what they're to do and what they're to believe and what are the finer points of the way they're to live. He's just telling them what his heart attitude is. And out of that, you read into it. Tremendous, wonderful instruction on what our attitude should be. Let me give you an example of this. In verse 8, I think it is, Paul describes something of the manner in which he prays. And he's just describing the the attitude that he has in praying for the people of Rome. And yet what he says in the moment in which he expresses this is, is wonderfully instructive for us. He's not trying to be instructive, but it's wonderfully instructive for us. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ, he writes. And here Paul reveals the personal practice that he has in prayer that is very instructive. Paul's prayer is not remote. It's intimate. He is writing from a deep claim or deep sense of God's claim upon him as his own. God owns him, my God, he says. In the same way, Paul, in this sense of God's claim or ownership over him, feels a claim upon God. And so Paul also claims God as his own as well. We sang that song, I am his and he is mine. And that's the mentality that Paul has when he enters into his prayers. He's aware that I am God's and God is mine. And this is not, by the way, the normal way in which Paul refers to God when he speaks. When Paul speaks to God when he's writing his letters, he usually projects God forward in these very high and transcendent and other terms. Oftentimes when Paul is teaching and instructing, he breaks forward in these tremendous 
doxologies of praise in which he exalts God in this highest place. Here's an example. In Romans 11, verse 33, Paul says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. God is, Paul is saying, beyond us in our ability to comprehend and understand him. Four or five times, Paul reveals this idea of God in a personal way, particularly when he's speaking to people and he's wanting to lay upon them personal applications of how they ought to live. So in Philippians 4.19, Paul says, My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He brings this great, powerful God down in some point of personal application and this is something, the attitude Paul has when he comes to God in prayer. Although God is wonderful and powerful and transcendent, and we'll refer to this in just a moment, he's also intimate and near, and he, he has a claim upon them. Let me give you a different example of this. Go to Acts chapter 27. Here, not long after this, Paul is going to make his way to Jerusalem, and Paul doesn't receive such a great reception from some individuals. And as a result, Paul is put into prison, and Paul declares a right to go and present himself before Caesar, and so then Paul is put on a ship and he's sent as a prisoner back to Rome. That's how Paul gets to Rome. He gets to Rome, which he was planning to go to when he writes this letter, but he gets there as a prisoner bound to be going before Caesar. And as Paul is making this journey, he's put on a ship and at some point in time, he warns the captain of the ship that they shouldn't leave the port they're in because he understands that the weather is going to turn against them and it would be dangerous for them. But the captain ignores the prisoner Paul's advice. They set out for sale anyhow. As a result, a great storm and the, and the weather turns against them and they're caught in that storm and the ship is being driven along and they have no control over where they're going and it seems very certain that the ship is going to be lost and that everyone on the ship is going to be lost as well. They're all going to perish and die. Paul sets himself to fasting and praying to discern what is going to happen to them in the middle of this perilous moment they're in. In verse 21b... Paul then steps forward and speaks to the captain of the ship and commander of the ship, and he says this. Men, I like this, you should have listened to me. <laughs> My wife says that often to me. <laughs> you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only to the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. But here we see Paul's attitude even as he's fasting and praying and the message that God gives to him. It's a message from the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Do you see that sense of ownership that's in Paul's life? as he's praying and coming before the Lord. And so this, this attitude is expressed as he talks about his prayers to those in Rome. I thank my God, he says. I thank my God. And then he says, through Jesus Christ. And this is also very interesting and instructive in how Paul prays. Although Paul senses this great sense of intimacy with God and ownership with God and claim upon God, Paul never loses a sense of the awesomeness of God and the fact that he cannot somehow saunter into God's presence on his own. 
He has to, like they did in the old, he has to come before God through the offering of a sacrifice. And he has to come to God through the means of a priest that represents him. But the sacrifice is Jesus Christ. And the priest is Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, I come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And it's not just true in order to be born again. It's true in order to pray. You want to come to God and seek God and communicate to him, this holy and awesome God? You come holding on to the hem of the garment of our Lord Jesus Christ. You enter into the presence of God with your high priest. You enter by way of his sacrifice and his life because God is still holy. God is still to be revered and he's still awesome. And so you see Paul sharing in this, just this statement he makes, wonderful instruction to us on the attitude that should be in us as we approach God in prayer, a sense of intimacy, a sense of his claim upon our lives, a sense of our claim upon his life. But oh, only, only still reverential, still in awe, still in wonder. Only through Jesus Christ, only in his name. And for in fact, the Lord Jesus taught us to pray and ask all things in his name for this very reason. Before we sign off for this broadcast, I want to remind you of a ministry website that we've developed. It is testyourtestimony.com. Our concern is that there are many in our churches who do not have a true born-again relationship with Jesus Christ and so face the prospect of his rejection at the judgment seat in the last day. Our pity for these has made us develop the site testyourtestimony.com in order to apply the command of 2 Corinthians 13.5 to test ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. For now, I look forward to our next time partaking together of the bread of life. Till then, may God bless you.